Well, good morning. Welcome to Ridgetop Church. We're kind of in the uh, ramp-up stage to the fall. Summer today, I mean, summer's over. I hate to, hate to say it, but um, tomorrow public school starts, and then the, next, the following week uh, UT and other colleges in the, in the city start up. And uh, so it's an exciting time. I would expect there'll be some uh, even more new faces coming in to, to Ridgetop. Uh, and we'll be on campus doing some things. We've been doing a few things out in the neighborhood. Uh, Ellen will talk more about that uh, at the end of the service. But um, yeah, it's an exciting time. And we're finishing up over the next two weeks uh, this series that we've been doing in the book of Acts that we've been calling Ordinary Church. Um, and we've been seeing some repetitive themes in the book of Acts. And you may be, if you've been tracking with us, you may have been thinking, why does Robert keep preaching the same sermon? He just keeps saying the same thing over and over. Because Luke's saying the same thing over and over. Um, and so a, a couple of those themes that seem to be related is increased persecution and increased spread of the gospel. If you remember in the beginning of the book where Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of, ends of the earth. And uh, it's like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, very exciting verse. And what you see is that God is using persecution as a means of scattering the church in order to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, and Antioch, the church of Antioch, is one of the stories that we get to pick up on uh, that is part of this scattering from home base of Jerusalem out to the uh, ends of the earth. And this uh, increased persecution and increased spread of the gospel is not just for the book of Acts. It's throughout church history that we see this. It's even in modern days. Um, Ellen and I got to uh, chat with uh, a Chinese believer. That's one of the teachers here at, at Little Tiger uh, School that uses our building during the week. And uh, she was sharing uh, with us her story of how she came to faith. And she, she told us that uh, she had a Christian aunt who had shared the gospel with her and she wasn't quite sure about it but went to church with the aunt and over about four years uh, listened to the gospel and as a college student responded in faith and then came to UT for grad, grad school um, but, but the, the additional part of the story is that she's also sharing with her own family and so she is sharing with her mom and sharing with her grandmother and, uh, and, and we just loved just hearing this story of the gospel spreading in this little family uh, under communist atheistic regime that's been going on since 1949. And we also know the larger story of the spread of the gospel in China because in 1949 when it became the People's Republic of China and became an atheistic communistic re regime, there was about 700,000 Christians and now there's about 100 million, Okay. And they can't build buildings and put up steeples and have, you know, public kinds of, of worship services. Yet they've grown uh, exponentially over that time. In contrast to America, which in 1950, about 50% of people were regular church attenders. And now that number's about 20%. And we've got all kinds of freedom. Right. That, does that mean that the gospel can't spread in the midst of freedom? No, obviously not. Um, but it is interesting to see some of these places that are under persecution 
and the gospel is spreading in a, re a really, really uh, extraordinary way. And it's what we see here in the book of Acts. Um, by chapters 11, 12, 13, we have Luke saying things like that the increase and the multiplication of the word of God, like he's pers personifying the word as if it has a kind of a life in and of itself. And it's moving, it's increasing, it's, it's multiplying. Um, it's be gone from, we, we used this, this verbiage a few weeks ago, uh, gone from being an epidemic to a pandemic, right? It's not just one source of gospel witness coming from Jerusalem, but now there's multiple sources. It's, a, it's an epidemic, uh, a pandemic, excuse me. And Antioch is one of those sources of gospel witness. So the reason we're jumping around from you know, chapter 11 and chapter 13 is I want to tell the story of the church of Antioch. And these are some of the major verses that talk about the story. Um, we see the, the genesis of the, the, the church of Antioch. We see the growth. We see the giving. And we see the going. The genesis, the growth, the giving, the going. There's, there's a little outline there. If you get lost, that's where I'm headed. The genesis. Of course, I had to use genesis because it starts with G. Uh, Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So remember back in Acts chapter 8 when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned and everyone scattered, right? Verse uh, 4 of chapter 8, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so Luke gives us a little hint of what's going on, that this really horrible thing has happened where Stephen is stoned, but then also the church at large is being persecuted by Saul and they just run. And they just go everywhere. And Luke gives us this little hint in chapter 8. Uh, but they were speaking, uh, preaching the, the word. And so the first part of the Antioch story uh, is this cross-cultural witness from ordinary Christians. Cross-cultural witness from ordinary Christians. These ordinary Christians who are scattering from Jerusalem, uh, they're not even named here. They're just said to be that they're people from Cyprus and Cyrene. I don't think it's because Luke doesn't know their name. I'm pretty sure Luke knows their name. But he's not telling you their name. He wants you to know. They're just ordinary people. They're just ordinary Christians that left Jerusalem and... They, unlike the majority of those that left Jerusalem, started talking to non-Jews. You, you may have caught on to that, that the majority of people coming out of Jerusalem were just talking to those who were culturally like them and linguistically like them. And we want to be careful that we're not too hard on them because we oftentimes are with people that are culturally like us and linguistically like us and we don't share it with them, okay? So they were sharing <laughs> with those who were culturally and linguistically like them and that hey, that's awesome. But these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene decided to step across a cultural divide 
and an, probably a linguistic divide and give the gospel to those who were non-Jewish. And this is pretty amazing. I mean, we, we know from some of the early parts of Acts that this was a really hard thing for a Jewish person to do. They had been eating kosher and they had been keeping out of Gentile homes, trying to stay sort of ritualistically clean. And now even Peter had to have like a, a special vision of this non-kosher food being presented to him and being told by God it's okay to eat this in order for him to engage with non-Jews. And so we know this is, this is hard. And, and we know ourselves that when we are in situations where we're having to walk across a cultural divide or a linguistic divide, it can be a little scary, maybe a lot scary. And so these guys are willing to, to step across the divide and offer the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is the first part of the genesis of the Church of Antioch. This is how we get the Church of Antioch. But the second part is that the, the Lord was with them. He was with them. Now, who was he with? Who was he, who was he with? <laughs> was he with the men of, of Cyprus and Cyrene? Or was he with the Antiochians? I think the answer is yes. He was with both. He was with the people from Cyprus and Cyrene. He was with the Antiochians. And partly I think that because Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says this, and this is like a prayer request from Paul, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. You see Paul asking for prayer on both sides of this sort of evangelistic coin, right? He's like, could you pray that opportunities would open up in the hearers of the gospel? And would you pray for me, the, the sharer of the gospel too, so that I would communicate it in a way that's uh, accurate but also contextual and that they'd be able to understand it, right? And so God's with them. And Luke uses this kind of Old Testament uh, phrasing of the hand of the Lord was with them. And I think partly what that means is God's being hands-on, pun intended, in this situation. He's not just standing at the sidelines going, man, I hope this whole like Christian spread of witness goes well. He's not just like blowing a little bit to try, you know, barely influence. He's hands-on. He's involved. And he's working in the Antiochians. He's working in the, the people from Cyprus and Cyrene. And so this is how we get a church in Antioch, is ordinary people sharing the gospel cross-culturally, and God showing up in a really powerful way. This is how churches get planted. There's no other way. There's no other way. Except for the proclamation of the gospel by everyone. Not, not just the pastor, not just certain leaders. Everyone. And God showing up in a really, really powerful way. Um, and this is, this is how churches have been planted throughout history. Um, I, I think about this, uh, this, the story of St. Patrick. You know, usually we think of green beer and shamrocks and all kinds of things. Um, but what he does is he gathers up some ordinary Christians and he, he shows up in Ireland where he had been enslaved for a long time and had escaped back to England. And he decided he wanted to go back and give the gospel to the Irish. And so he just grabs up a, a little band of, of ordinary Christians. They show up at a village 
they, they camp out at, uh, at near the, uh, wherever the pagan rituals are happening, wherever the pagan worship is happening, maybe a large tree or sometimes up on a mountain, and they just kind of serve notice, oh, we're taking you down. Jesus, Jesus is here now. And they start praying, and they start serving, and they start offering hospitality, and people start coming into the village, and they start feeding them, and if they're wounded, they try to help and bind up their wounds, whatever it is they need, and they share the gospel. And then one after another, these little villages, people become Christians. They're gathered in the churches. And then they gather up another little band of people and they go, let's go do it again. And they did it again and again and again and again. And all of Ireland was evangelized in this way. And so it required people, but required the power of God to show up in the midst of the proclamation so it doesn't just start. The church doesn't just start. Um, the church also grows. And this is when, where we pick up Acts 11, verse 22. The report of, his, of this, so the report of the Antioch start, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So if you want to know why we're called Christians, there it is. Called uh, Christians or little Christs. It was the first time in the church uh, at Antioch. And when this starts to happen, this is similar to when Philip shares the gospel with the Samaritans and when Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius and his, all of his Gentile peeps, um, the church at Jerusalem is like, what? We're concerned. We need to send some people to check this thing out. And so they typically send Peter and John, right? The big guns, the apostles, the, the, the part of the big three that Jesus was the closest to. And they show up. And uh, they confirm that, hey, this is a legitimate thing that's happening, that the gospel is being preached and people are being changed and church is being planted. Um, but here in Antioch, they don't send Peter and John. I don't know if they were too tired or what their deal was, but they send a guy named Barnabas, or at least that's his nickname. Um, we heard about Barnabas earlier in the book, in Acts chapter 4, uh, where we were hearing a description of the early church and what it was like, uh, the very first uh, Christian converts, and it says in Acts 4, 34, it says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is where we, Luke first introduces Barnabas. And again, this, Luke, is, he's a very sophisticated storyteller. And so he's like giving you little introductions of characters that he then picks up later. And this is one of those that he does this with, which is um, Barnabas. And he, he seems like he's a man of means, like he has lands, he can sell those lands, he can take all the proceeds from that land, he lays it at the apostles' feet, meaning he's like, no strings attached, whatever you think is best, it's all yours, take it. 
Um, very, very, very generous uh, kind of a person. He's also a Levite, which means he's in the priestly class. He, he might not be like an official Aaron line kind of priest, but he's at least in the priest business, and uh, he, he's a religious worker. Uh, and he has become a Christian and one of the earliest Christian converts. But he's not just a giver of money. He's also an encourager. And he's so much an encourager that the apostles give him a nickname. I think this is cool. One, that they give out nicknames. Two, that, that, that he like got this nickname. I mean, how many people got a nickname from the apostles? I, I don't know. But Barnabas does. And it mean, literally means son of encouragement. And this idea of encouragement, it, it's a coming alongside of people and cheering them on. A coming alongside of people and cheering them on. This little phrase that uh, Luke said, he quotes Barnabas, and he said, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That word exhorted is translated uh, parakaleo. And this is usually the word, if in your English Bible you see encouragement or exhortation, it's usually this word of parakaleo. And para, come alongside, um, like a paralegal comes alongside a lawyer, right? So a para, come alongside, and kaleo, call out. And so I, I just, just sort of envision this person beside this person going, you can do it, come on, let's go, right? He is an encourager coming alongside. He did this for Saul, who became eventually became Apostle Paul, right? Acts 9, verse 26, we also see Barnabas' story there. Uh, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join, now he's talking about Saul, the, the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. I don't think we would have Apostle Paul if it wasn't for Barnabas. The apostles were scared to death of this guy. I mean, he had been going house to house, dragging you know, men, women, and children out of the houses and incarcerating them because they were Christians. I mean, they had a good reason to be afraid of him. But for whatever reason, Barnabas was like, let's, let's take a chance on this guy. He's legit. And he, and he brings him to the apostles, and he, he vouches uh, for him. Um, he's spoken of as being... Barnabas is as being full of the Holy Spirit and faith. This is a, a repetitive phrase in the book of Acts. I think Luke wants us to take notice of this, right? Um, and I've been saying this, full of the Holy Spirit, meaning sensitive to the initiation of the Spirit. And full of faith, willing to say yes when the Spirit initiates. So full of the Holy Spirit, sensitive, right? And then full of faith, willing to say yes. Barnabas is willing to do this. Holy Spirit initiates with him. He's like, okay, I'm going to vouch for Saul. I know he's like public enemy number one, but I'm going to stand behind, beside this guy, and I'm going to say we should accept him into the church. Now, it's interesting that he, 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 he stands up for Saul in Jerusalem. Um, now, Saul causes riots everywhere he's going. So he called, caused riots in Damascus when he told people about Jesus. He caused riots in Jerusalem. Uh, when he told people about Jesus, and this is where the apostles go, okay, we like you, 
and we're glad you're a Christian now, but could you just go to Tarsus and we'll call you, don't call us. And he spends a significant time out there in no man's land just kind of figuring out the gospel and what the heck's going on. But nobody cares about him, nobody wants him, nobody's calling him to come be on their church staff, okay? And Barnabas has got Saul in the back of his mind. And when he, he sees God working in Antioch, he decides, I'm going to go get Saul, and I'm going to bring him. I'm going to put him on my church staff. He's going to be my first worker. And he travels the 80 miles to Antioch, finds him, or to Tarsus, excuse me, and he finds him, and then he brings him back to Antioch. Now, why does he do that? He does that because he wants Saul to teach the Antiochians. I'm sure Barnabas had some teaching ability. I mean, he seems to be doing a good job. Things are happening, and people are understanding the gospel. But for whatever reason, he's like, I can't do what these folks need. And Saul can do it. And so he goes and gets Saul. And for one whole year, they teach, and they teach, and they teach, and they teach. And I'm suspecting they encourage, and they encourage, and they encourage, and they encourage. They teach, and they encourage. They teach, and they encourage. This is how they grew this church. This is how you grow a church. Once the thing gets started, you teach, and you encourage. You teach, and you encourage. You teach, and you encourage. Uh, John Piper's uh, description of good preaching, he says it should have light in the mind and heat in the heart. And he's getting at these two pieces. Light in the mind, it should be good teaching. It should be accurate. It should be understandable. But it's not just that. There's also heat in the heart. There's encouragement. There's exhortation. There's a spurring on to do the thing that you're, 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 you're understanding in your mind. This is what Jesus tells Peter when he's giving him his, his job description. Right? He says, Peter... Feed my sheep. How do you feed the sheep? Well, you feed the sheep with the word of God. You feed the sheep with the word of God. And this is what Barnabas and Saul are doing. They're just pouring it in, pouring in this, this word, this teaching ministry, and they're exhorting them and encouraging them. And what happens is it starts to bubble up in giving and going. And so you see some really extraordinary things, some really extraordinary fruit coming out of this church. So 1127, we see now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay, so now we got some more Jerusalem folk coming down, checking things out. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined, everyone, according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So they get a visit from these prophets in Jerusalem, and they're spending time together. They're uh, probably having some teaching times and encouragement times. And through divine initiation, these prophets are made aware that there's a famine coming. It's going to be worldwide. Um, and the, the, Luke lets us know this, this is legit because he's like, oh, actually, the famine happened in the days of Claudius. So it's Luke's way of saying, 
These guys were no sham. Like, they knew what was up, and they said what God was saying to them, and then it happened, right? And this is how you know someone who has some kind of, like, a word from God, some sort of actual specific thing that they're like, this is what God is pressing on me. How you know they're legit is it actually happens. Luke lets us know that. That these folks had some, some insight from God, and it actually happened. What's, what's interesting here, and I think what Luke is drawing most attention to, is that their response to this is that they want to give back to the church of Jerusalem. They want to cross culture back to the mother church, back to Jerusalem, and, and give them money in preparation for the famine. Famine's not even here yet. Like, they're just prophesying that's going to happen, and they're saying, okay, we need to send money to Jerusalem. What that tells me is that Jerusalem is strapped for cash, and the Antiochians are not. Because it's a wide-scale famine. I mean, they're going to experience famine too. But for whatever reason, they're feeling like, we're, hey, we're good. Like, we've got, we've got what we need. Jerusalem does not have what they need. We're going to send money back with Saul and Barnabas, and we're going to give to this. And it's an extraordinary thing of, of generosity. And, and I think it was probably a good lesson for the church at Jerusalem where they realize, wow, this mission thing, this isn't a burden. This is a blessing. <laughs> Can you imagine Saul and Barnabas showing up and they're like got bags of cash? And they're like, where are you guys coming from? We're coming from Antioch. It's a new church. They've decided that they want to give you these, this. And they're like, wow, wow. This is what happens when we proclaim the gospel to the nations? This is amazing, right? No. That's always, not always like a cash refund, but um, I think it, it was an important piece of, of the, the life in the Jerusalem church to see this growth and this generosity coming out of this new church of baby Christians who wanted to, to serve God and love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, the other thing that happens is the going so the, the growth that's occurring, it's, it's manifesting with, go, with, with, with giving and now going. And then now we're jumping to 13, okay? So 13.1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. So out of the growth that they've experienced, they've developed quite a prayer life. And they've got this corporate prayer life that's happening in their church. These leaders are gathering, they're fasting, they're praying. Um, I don't think they've gathered to pray for any particular reason. I don't think it was like missions prayer night. You know, they're like, let's pray about, you know, our new emphasis of going to the nations. They're just worshiping and praying, and the Holy Spirit begins to initiate with them. How did that happen? I don't know. Like, I, it doesn't give us the details of how did that room full of, of prayers and worshipers come to a place where they were in a consensus that the Holy Spirit is saying this. But however it happened, this is, this is what happened. And the this was to send out Paul and Barnabas to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, this was God's plan all along. And Luke let us know that back in Acts chapter 9. Uh, verse 15, uh, this is God talking to Ananias, who was given the task of going and laying hands on Saul 
to um, welcome him into the church. Ananias wasn't all that excited about it. But, but, but God says this to him. He says, go for he is a chosen interest, instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So God had this, it was, this was the plan. I'm, I'm going to send this guy out. And he's going he's gonna to bring the gospel to the Jews, but he's also going to bring them to the Gentiles. So he'd all, he was always thinking this. Um, but he was never thinking he would do it alone. Apostle Paul's not some like super Christian that goes out and plants churches and evangelizes the, you know, the known world uh, in, in, in the West. Um, he has an encourager named Barnabas that's put right beside him. He's given a church that loves him and prays for him and resources him and sends him out to do the very thing that God had, had prophesied, basically, that he would do. Right? And this is all part of God's plan of, of using ordinary people, ordinary Christians, the ordinary church, to be part of the sending of this first little missionary band that is intentionally sent in obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Remember how they scattered out of Jerusalem. It was not from a prayer meeting. It was persecution. It was Stephen getting killed and Saul running house to house and dragging people out of their houses for being Christians, and everyone scattered. That's how the first scattering went, but this is the second scattering, and it came out of a prayer meeting, and they, and they followed God in this initiation of bringing the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and this is what, you know, this is what we want to be. <laughs> we want to be a church that's sensitive to the Spirit and His initiation with us to go to the nations. This is one of the reasons why it was so important to me that we at least send a few out to the nations. And when we, we went and and took a small team to, to Central Asia, and those that went were really blessed and got to see the, the gospel going out in a place where so few have even heard the gospel. And those that sent, which was the, the rest of the church, I think, were also blessed as they gave and they prayed and they checked in and encouraged and, and were part of the sending of the goers. And I, I wanted that to be in the DNA of our church. And so it was important to me, even though we're still trying to get our church off the ground, that we did that and we sent people to the nations. I want that to be a part of this church, its entire existence. Right? And so part of that is because of what I see in the book of Acts. I, I, I want us to be an, an Antioch, a sending place. We want to send uh, people uh, to Austin, but yes, uh, uh, to, the, to the nations. Um, I think there's a lot we can learn from the Church of Antioch. And so I want to go through each of these points and just briefly mention some things that I think are practical takeaways. So uh, in regards to their start, um, on one hand, the pressure's off, and on one hand, the pressure's on. Okay, so the pressure's off. Uh, the way that churches get planted and things get moving and people come to Jesus is that God's hand is with the, the group of Christians that's trying to plant a church. 
Pressure's off, guys. God, God has to show up. And indeed, I, I think he has. I think that we're, we're, we're almost through a, a, a year of Sundays, um, and we have seen God at work. The pressure is also on everyone. Everyone in our church is being sent, right? You're being sent to the city. You're being sent to the campus. We are the missionary band that's being sent out to bring the gospel uh, to the city and to the campuses. Uh, and regarding to growth, uh, I think it, it, we're encouraged by the story of Antioch to be encouraging each other in the Word, right? And that doesn't mean we're just intellectual about the Word, but we're encouraging one another with the Word. We're applying that Word to actually daily living and encouraging each other to let that Word work itself out in that daily living. But it, it, it's not less than the Word. We don't, we don't want to just give each other pep talks and self-help hacks. We want to give each other the Word. And we want to do it in an encouraging, practical way. We want to be parakletoses. We all need parakletoses. Nobody is without a need for encouragement. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to walk with Jesus. It's, in, it, 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 it's discouraging many days. And we all need people to come alongside and go, you can do this, and give us some, some truth that's applied to our daily living. And we do that for each other. We encourage one another. We're all parakletoses. I know that's not a real word, but it is now. Uh, the giving, um, this generous giving that we see all throughout the book of Acts, the hospitality of those who had homes in Jerusalem who were letting people crash <laughs> on their couches and offering the food that they had so that these crazy pilgrims that had come in for Pentecost had a place to live and food to eat. By the, at the very beginning of the church, there was hospitality, there was generosity. Um, the people like Barnabas laying generous gifts at the feet of the apostles um, to help the church and the mission that it has been given, had been given. And then the Antiochians giving generously to uh, the, the Christians in Jerusalem that they knew would be struggling uh, because of this large-scale famine. And I, I do believe that the Spirit has been prompting that kind of generosity in our little church. We've already seen this. We've already seen people being generous with their resources to help just the, the church ministry at large, to help with the trip to Central Asia, to meet needs when folks have kind of walked in the door or called me up and are living in the city and struggling and saying, I need X, Y, Z, and we're like, hey, can people help? People immediately jump in and are helping either with stuff they brought from home or here's money, and uh, I think this is part of the work of the Spirit in our church. Let's, let's continue in that. Let's grow in that because this is part. It's not the only thing, but it is part of how the mission is carried forward, is resources are being generous, generously leveraged for the mission of the church. And then, fourthly, the going. Um, I don't think that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were showing up at that prayer meeting that night and thinking, we're going to get sent out to plant churches all over Asia Minor, Asia Minor and uh, Europe. But when the Spirit initiated with them and said, this is what I want y'all to do, right? Church, 
and these two missionaries, everyone said yes. They were full of faith, full of the Spirit. And, and they, were, they were sacrificing, both, both sides were sacrificing. Think about this little church and how much they were depending on Barnabas and Saul to encourage them and teach them. And for them to go, bye, see you later. That was huge to send out the A-team. Right? But it was also huge for Saul and, and Barnabas. No doubt, they were loved, encouraged. They kept, kept coming back to Antioch as a home base. So they definitely felt loved and encouraged, and yet they left that home base and were sent. And, and so we want to be that kind of a church, willing to send, willing to go, trusting that the generosity of God in the gospel will actually empower us to do what we got to do in terms of the mission that we've been given. And it never makes sense on paper. In fact, we're going to have... Uh, uh, Church planter and his family are going to show up in a few weeks. They're living in Australia right now. They're uh, from California, but long story, you'll hear more about it. But they're going to plant a church just north of here in the Crestview neighborhood, and we're going to be their mother church. Um, we're going to be the sending. We're going to pray for them. We're going to love them. They're going to worship with us for a few months. Um, are we ready to do that? No. <laughs> we're not ready to do that. Not at all. Um, but uh, I, it's something that, again, I want this to be part of the DNA of our church, that we're thinking about not just going to the nations, we're thinking about church planting in the city, and uh, I'm trusting that God is going to resource us in whatever way that needs to be resourced so that we can do this. Sound like fun? Yeah, you're at me. I'm not, I don't know if it's fun or not. Um, the sensitivity to the Spirit and the willingness to say yes um, I think it is described well by Pastor J.D. Greer, who is a pastor of Summit Church in uh, North Carolina. He says, put your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. Right? And so we put our yes on the table a year ago, and we thought God was going to put it somewhere in the Middle East, maybe, and, or maybe in Munich, Germany, or Zurich. or We had a lot of wonderful places that we were thinking... This is where our yes is going to go. And God said, Austin, Texas. <laughs> and basically did that by closing every other door and opening really wide a door to plant in Austin. And so we said yes. But every one of us has to put that yes on the table. Every ordinary Christian has to put that yes on the table and say, put it on the map. I'm hoping at least some of you will stay in Austin because I need you, but um, that may be sending you out to other places. And we will do that, and we will pray for you, and we will resource you as God gives us the ability to do. We want to be that kind of church. We want to be in Antioch. Right? And all of this springs not from some kind of strategy or vision statement. It springs from Jesus. You may notice that the, the, the ordinary Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene, Luke says they preached the Lord Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that cool? They preached the person and work of Jesus. And that's what started the church of Antioch. And so if you've not yet received that 
good news about Jesus, that he died in your place on the cross to forgive you of your sins, to bring you into a relationship with God. I want to encourage you to receive that this morning. It's a gift. It's free. You don't even have to go on a probationary period. Like He offers it freely, and you freely receive it by faith. And this begins this new work, this new life, the growth that comes from the good news about Jesus. It's also what we're reminded of when we come to this table. That on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he took bread and he blessed it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He, he did this, he instituted this to keep the church focused on the Lord Jesus, <laughs> right? I mean, even if I get this sermon all messed up, we're going to end right here and you're going to be reminded, this is what it's about, right? It's about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. In the same way, he took the cup and after he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He let them know that that gospel was instituting a new covenant community. It wasn't just an individual salvations, although it does include that, but those individuals are being gathered into a covenant community known as the church. And those churches are, are, are springing up all over uh, the Roman Empire, as we read in the book of Acts, but they're also springing up here in Austin, Texas. And so we're reminded that we are a covenant community that is founded, that is focused on, centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the table. Uh, if you've not yet received Christ by faith, we want to encourage you to receive him this morning. If uh, you're not there yet, we're glad you're here. We really want to have conversations with you and maybe answer questions if you have questions uh, or maybe you just need some time just to, to to read some and to listen and to ask questions as we go but if you're not yet a Christ follower during this time we're going to ask you to stay in your seat and uh, not take of the communion because it is a signifier of belief in Christ all right well, let me pray and then we can get started God we thank you uh, for the gospel thank you for the good news about you and what you did for us, uh, the forgiveness of our sins, the reconciliation that we have experienced with you uh, in Christ. And we thank you that you didn't just save us as individuals, that you have saved us to a covenant community, a church, a family, a spiritual family. Uh, thank you for the spiritual family that you created at Antioch and the example that they are to us both of, of their ordinariness, or I can't even say that, but the, the, the way that they're so ordinary, um, but also the extraordinary things that you did through them by the power of your spirit. And we pray that you would do that here. You would do that in our congregation, uh, that we would be built up in the gospel, empowered by the spirit, sent out to the city, to the campuses, and to the nations, and that we would be in Antioch as well. And we thank you for this bread and cup, what it signifies. God, we pray you would bless it, uh, that you would give this, uh, make this time a time of intimacy with you and just a reminder of the relationships that we have with each other around the gospel. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.